Since we first started the Reenactors Corner podcast almost three years ago, we've interviewed lots of guests on the show and asked them countless questions about World War II reenacting. But now it's our turn to be in the hot seat as we answer as many questions as we can sent in by you, our amazing and loyal listeners. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Reenactors Corner podcast. This is Chris Schreiber, the most loved personality in historical reenacting. I'm here again today with Ben. How are you doing today, Ben? I'm great, Chris. Good to be back. So for today's episode, we are going to be fielding some questions. I had posted on my own personal Facebook, uh, which is Chris Schreiber. If we're not friends on there, if you're on Facebook, you can find me on there. And uh, I had posted asking people if there was anything that uh, they wanted us to talk about specifically, or if they had any questions, I invited them to post them. And we got a lot of great responses. So we're going to be talking about those today. Great. Let's get into it. So here we go. The first uh, question comes from our friend Chris Beeble. He says, with the nice weather returning to the Northeast, what are you excited for in reenacting? I'm excited to sleep in a Zelt tent again. Um, that'll be nice. I've been super excited about sort of spring camping, um, being able to sleep outdoors again with the warm weather coming back. I've been getting ready for it all week. I've been going through my blankets and uh, washing them, mm, getting them ready. Cozy. Yeah, I have never really washed any of the wool blankets that I use for reenacting. Yeah, I should really start doing that. Well, it makes them softer. and I believe it. Yeah. Yeah, so, I believe it. You know, these wool blankets that we use, uh, if you're a reenactor, you know the feeling. They're kind of itchy. Uh, they're scratchy. It turns out that a real simple hand wash with reg- regular laundry detergent uh, and, and plenty of rinses and then hanging it up to dry results in a much more comfortable blanket. Yeah, my blankets are the cartoon from The Simpsons, so I should probably get on that. Um yeah, itchy and scratchy is, is my life right now. Zach Williams writes, How's the bunker coming along? Sounded like in the Patreon episode there was a lot of earth moving still to do. Oh, there was earth moving, all right. Um, I feel like my back is still probably a little sore from that. Or I'm just out of shape, but uh, yeah. Well, for those of you who aren't um, supporters on Patreon and Shame didn't on you. hear the episode, we uh, we did a lot of work at that site uh, the weekend before last. And uh, the work that we had to do was not actually like progress in terms of getting the place more done. It was kind of to undo damage that happened over the winter while we've got this thing sort of in in a process. Yeah, like erosion damage control or erosion maintenance, you might say. So, yeah. Well, so this is the status report on this uh for, for people who, who have no idea what I'm talking about, Ben and I are a member of a German unit as well as a local Soviet unit. And our two units are, are working together to build a bunker at a site out in western Massachusetts that we use for reenacting. We've already got one of these things built. We've been using it for a couple of years now. It's an awesome place. And we are building a second one there on the site. Um the status of the second one as of now is that the hole is dug for which we used uh, modern machinery and tools because if we were going to dig that giant hole by hand with shovels, it would never have gotten done. And the frame of the building is constructed and the floor of the building is there and the roof is on. Uh, but that is it uh, for right now. We've got a work party coming up in June and it's we've got a really ambitious list of things that we want to do with this second bunker that we're in the process of building. Uh, we want to complete the walls and waterproof them. Uh, we want to uh, waterproof the roof and install vents in the roof, make the walls for the entrance, which is going to be in the front, and hang the door. And then we want to put uh, we want to start backfilling it, so putting the dirt back in the hole and on top of the roof, and that's. Uh, that's a lot of work and it's going to be a lot for us to try to accomplish in a single weekend. Mm, mm. 
And now not only that, but we have to affect some repairs on the first bunker that we have that was the one that we kind of learned on that is now a couple of years old. We need to take all the dirt off the roof, put new plastic down, put down metal roofing, um, and then bury that again. And we also need to build a retaining wall in the front because right now this thing is uh, it's basically surrounded on three sides by dirt. And one side is left with no dirt, and there's not really anything kind of pushing forward on it. So the whole thing is like kind of leaning down the hill a little bit. Yeah, you can definitely see the angle of the bunks has uh, has changed somewhat dramatically when you go in it. It's it's really wild. It's coming along, but there's a lot of work ahead of us. I have every expectation that we're going to have the second bunker completed uh, before the end of the summer, before the end of this year, certainly. That'll uh, be really fun. Yeah. That'll be, that'll be awesome. Our friend Adam Gallagher writes, what would your perfect event look like? Yeah, it's tough, right? If if money was no option, if time was no option. I mean, my perfect event, I guess, theoretically would be um, that I am given like a key to a time machine that takes me back to World War II, mm. as well as some kind of a magical elixir that prevents me from feeling any pain. <laughs> <sighs> I love it. I think definitely something with maybe the scale of like Fort Indian Town Gap, um, but like maybe with just everybody on the same sort of authenticity and mindset level um because even at gap you had some compromises there with that number of people um shit ton of people there's like that allows for infrastructure to basically do a lot of stuff um you have like functioning headquarters functioning kitchens um functioning comms maybe even no combat but just like honestly if it was just one big old barracks event that would be great I, I also would like an event like that. It would be even more perfect if they paid me to attend. Mm, mm, mm. Luke DeVisa says, what would be a good daily routine at a public reenactment? Lots of drills to kill time before battles or patrol exercises balanced with relaxing or more frontline life with a roll call at best and, quote, trench life, a.k.a. zony relaxing for most of it. Uh, I, t I trend towards the former just because unless you're really proficient at drill, it can be a little awkward doing drill in front of spectators. So you mean you trend toward the latter? Yes. Did I say that? Yeah, by former, he, yes, he meant yes, latter. Yes, yes, uh, yes. My, my brain is cooked right now. I know what those things mean in a, in a sane mind, but I am <laughs> not sane. Maybe somebody is repairing their trousers. Maybe somebody is... You know, writing a letter, um, maybe somebody is preparing food, um, maybe somebody is cleaning their Carnon D8, something like that. I haven't done a uh, public reenactment in a little while. And over years of reenacting, I've had all kinds of different ideas and different approaches uh, to doing public events. Some of them, I think, worked out well. Some of them worked out, didn't work out at all. Um, but what I basically have come to the conclusion of is that during the time that the public is there, you have to be answering questions from these people. And most of the people who are there, if there is a battle, they're really there to kind of see the tanks and, and see the vehicles. And, and if there's no tanks, no vehicles and no battle, then it's probably a, a very small type of event, in which case there's probably not that many people there. And then you really... It's all on you to answer the questions from these people. Yeah, and you might have some excellent conversations with people, and then you you might not. Um, and that that's kind of a crapshoot how that goes. Yeah, you might you might make you might make a new friend for life. You might also answer, "Is that a real fire?" a hundred times. <laughs> you know, are you hot in those uniforms a thousand times? Mm. And so I have kind of taken a big step back away from strategizing about what to do at public events. My thing is I go there, I set up something, I bring little tasks that I can work on, whether it's food to cook or uh, like Ben suggested, maintaining my gear or whatever. And then I just, I just figure, okay, well, uh, the gates are open, the public's coming through, I'm going to sit here. Uh, usually I just sit on the ground. I don't bring furniture or whatever. And then people come and families and children and they ask me questions and I answer it. And then at the end of the day, maybe I take some photos. Maybe I hang out with my friends. Maybe I drink some beers or maybe I don't. Mm. I, 
I just think there's so much about public events that you can't control. So, so much. Yeah, yeah. It could be great. It could be terrible. But uh, there's anything in between. But uh, it's it's really kind of out of your hands. You never know what's going to walk by. Right. And in light of the fact that you can't really control it, it just makes it really hard to plan for. Yeah. Billy Davis asks, how has the supply issue and or world events affected sources for quality reproduction items? Well, um, I am somewhat personally affected by this in that receiving items from St. Petersburg and sending money to Russia uh, has become a challenge. Um, it's still possible, um, but there's you have to, I feel like, Actually, I have I have heard some positive results about people getting their parcels from, you know, Ukraine, Russia, and Belarus. Actually, um, but uh, I'm less worried about it now than I was, say, a month ago. But it's still a little weird, um, given the nature of the conflict that's occurring over there. Well, Ben, let's let's break this down into two separate things. So you're you're talking about the uh, the war that's yeah. going on at this yeah. time. And how that has affected it. We did kind of make some predictions about this and talk about some worst case scenarios on our episode yeah. with Dylan Williams. Um, I think some of the worst case scenario stuff that we thought about definitely is not coming to pass. Yeah. I actually bought something over the weekend um, a few days ago in Russia, a collectible item that's being shipped to me. Uh, and I am not worried that it's not going to arrive. And I and I paid the seller with PayPal and everything was fine. I just got an item in the mail from Voin. Um and this item was produced, you know, sometime after February 22nd or whenever it was. So this item was made in a war zone and in, you know, the period of the last two months was produced and shipped out of a country currently being invaded to the, U to the U.S., which is really awesome. Um, regardless of your politics on the war, um, it's just really remarkable to receive something from a nation that – was in World War Two and is is now at war again. Um, yeah, so it did not come with any sort of radiation that I can discern or shrapnel damage. But uh, yeah. So the other part of Billy's question was just about the supply issue, supply chain difficulties, yeah. and that has had a, a pretty significant impact on me and my ability to get things that I need for reenacting for the last two years. I. Somebody I know ordered something from Hiki Shop um, back around Christmas time, and it arrived like today. And so that's it took four months. Four months for something to get from China to here, and I mean that person said that they assumed that that item had been lost in the mail, and so the vendor Coco Momo seventy seven who makes the high quality ammo pouches in China is shut down right now because mm. they've got a COVID lockdown going on over mm. there. Um, I mean, um, uh, at the vendor at the front has been sending out emails giving sort of updates about what they're faced with, where you've got vendors that are sh are shut down because of COVID, um, shipping prices skyrocketing. On the um, plus side, for the longest time, since like October, it was impossible to ship things to Australia except via express mail, which was very, very expensive. But as of last week... It is possible to ship to Australia by you know the normal um, the normal rates. Um, I've yet to receive confirmation that the items I shipped out to Australia arrive, but I take it as a good sign that they're doing normal mail to Australia again. So yeah, friends in Australia, rejoice! Well, it's crazy. It's like um, back in the earlier days of the pandemic, um, I had a real hard time just getting modern ink pads for use with rubber stamps, mm, you know, to mm, make reproduction mm. paperwork stuff at home. It's just like these, the things that have been a challenge, things I always took for granted. Never mind, obviously, uh, I posted some photos this week on Facebook and Instagram showing some reproduction tornister packs. People are asking me where they should get it. The best reproduction I have comes from uh, Zella 39, but they're in Russia. And uh, for what I understand, they're not really... Uh, they're kind of on a hiatus of sorts right now. Yeah. Uh, expecting to resume production soon, but I don't think they're even taking orders right now. Yeah, damn shame because they make lovely stuff, but uh, it's just, what can you do? I got a private message that said, Hey, Chris, I have a few questions for the podcast, but I would rather be unnamed if you decide to use them. 
With aging unit leaders in established reenacting groups, is there any easy way to transition into having a new leader take over without the unit completely falling apart or have a different feeling to it? Or would it be best to start fresh and make a new unit with a select few hand-picked guys you know and trust from the existing unit? Some unit leaders have pretty big shoes to fill, and it'll be tough to completely fill the void when they leave. It'll be very hard to become the same type of leader that everyone is used to with a well-established unit when a new person isn't able to or cannot put the same time and energy into things as their predecessor. Is it possible to successfully have multiple unit leaders to help carry the weight of running a unit they take over? Or would that eventually cause issues because not everyone is 100% on the same page, even with the same core goals? Oh, that's tough. That's a big question, and um, I can kind of fall back on my own experience where I have seen a variety of... Uh, look, I've seen unit leaders come and go in reenacting. Yeah, um, I have too. A good example uh, would be uh, Rudy Lange, our podcast guest from the past, the group that he is with, uh, a Grossdeutschland reenactment unit. They were run for many, many years by... Uh, a reenactor named Bob Lawrence, who I consider to be a friend. Bob stepped away from the hobby and somebody else has stepped up and is in charge of that group now. And they're still going strong. Yeah. Um, yeah, it is still possible. I mean, I, when I joined the hobby, I was in a, I was in a German group GR914 and the leader of that organization passed away of cancer uh, at a rather young age um, in his forties, I think it was. And the group still exists. They still have a lot of people at events. Yeah, um, they now are on yeah. their second leader yeah. after the guy, the founder and original leader had, had passed away. Yeah. But and they are still going strong. I remember there being some turmoil in the years or in the you know year or so after uh, his passing. And so it's, uh, it is possible to recover from something tragic and unexpected like that. Um, the German group that we are in, arose out of a, a sort of a unit split um, that happened in the aftermath of the original leader of that group stepping down. Yeah. And um, I think that both of the groups, that is to say our group and the original group, which is still going strong, were, were made better by the split because sure. it, it allowed people to kind of figure out w what they wanted to do and it, it eased some of the rancor that existed in what was sort of a power vacuum that arose after uh, the unit leader stepped out. Mm. Mm. So, you know, if I look at this question, um, is there any easy way to transition into having a new leader take over? I don't think there is. No, there really isn't. I mean, a lot of people who are leading a group, they're kind of all in for it. Um, and I feel like the idea of like a collective is – I feel like it, it's an idea that I haven't seen tried a lot. Um, and I feel like the real challenge there is stated is competing interests um, because I feel like people who have the drive to run a reenactment unit – also might have like an ego or they might have a, a specific way that they want something and there might be a conflict of interest if there's like multiple people and it's like you know ruled by committee but that said if everybody's on the same page that's sort of your dream i think well something that i have kind of come to the conclusion of with regard to reenactment groups this is my opinion but I think there really needs to be somebody to say how things are going to be. It's it's great to have votes. It's great to have consensus opinions. But in the case that there is a, not a total unanimous consensus, you need a guy to say, okay, this is the plan. Yeah, yeah. And there is something sort of inspiring about that kind of rule in this sort of small group in which, like, somebody says this is the way it is. And if people buy into his uh, concept, then they rally behind him, you know? You know, the uh, running a unit requires a lot of time and energy. Mm. Could that time and energy be split among multiple leaders? I don't really know. I think running a unit has to be a passion project on the part of the commander. Um, and most sort of successful unit commanders I know, including you, Chris, it is a passion project. It's also having done the thing where you find people in your existing unit and start a new unit. That wasn't really easy either. 
Yeah, there's challenges in that. I mean, sometimes if the commander leaves, especially if the unit's like small or not really well established, the people just go elsewhere. I That's mean, <clears throat> more often than not the case. Like, I I feel like that the, the units that are kind of being spoken about here in this question are bigger units because if you're in a small group that is fielding less than ten guys, and the unit commander steps down or loses interest or whatever i don't see how that group is going to really be able to continue unless there's some other specific person in the group that is like hyper motivated yeah i mean what percentage of reenactment groups that get uh started survive two years i think it's less than 50 percent i would say so i would say so i mean i feel like it's partially luck partially interest it's a it's a cocktail of things really blonda hensel writes it would be interesting to hear some discussion about what other groups do to create a feeling of being part of a bigger context. For example, you portray a group within a zook within a company. How do you create that feeling without having a hundred guys at the event? I mean, something that I know we've done in our group is um, there's like a there's like a hypothetical non-existent uh, commander or a hypothetical non-existent unit, and like maybe some maybe somebody like goes off and like pretends to link up with another group or like maybe somebody like goes off and they have like food stashed somewhere and then they bring it back and they say, Oh, I'm bringing this back from the cooks. Um, yeah. Yeah. You're describing kind of a mindset thing, yeah. which is a thing that we do where um, you have other uh, aspects of quote unquote, your unit at the event that are entirely notional. So for example, um, you might make reference to your sector and the units that are on uh, either flank of your part of the line, for example, or um, we have we have been given orders by the Zugführer and he will be coming back and he will uh, expect us to be giving a report or whatever. So mm. you're, you're talking about, you're thinking about these other aspects of the group that aren't really there. And something that I think is kind of cool, this can be a good thing or a bad thing at events, is when you have people arriving sort of at staggered times, not everybody in the group or everybody at the event is showing up at the same time. So you're getting, there are transports that are bringing in more people. And, you know, you're talking to one guy who came in on a transport and he can talk about the transport that he was on or whatever. Uh, And, of course, you don't know exactly how many transports they were going to be how often that you're going to be resupplied with reinforcements or however you want to kind of think about this but people arriving at an event in progress can kind of help with that too yeah yeah i like that but i'm not going to lie uh creating a feeling of being a part of a large organization being part of an army when you have maybe 10 people at the event or fewer that is a real challenge yeah totally totally you know, ideally, uh, in an ideal situation, you've got an event where multiple units are participating and there are people at the event that are strangers to you and there are people there for whom it's their first event and or maybe there are people that you haven't seen there in a long time or whatever, right? But um, And when there are people at the event who you don't know, that kind of helps to make it seem like, okay, I'm in an army here. These are other army guys. I don't know these guys. Yeah, it's like you're talking to somebody who you've never met before in the service, you know, but... Um... That that's not every event, and, and when so. it's when that's not the case, it can be really hard. Uh, it, it it certainly requires some effort to try to make it seem like there are other people at the site. When they're yeah, on. yeah. Dylan Williams asks, "What would it take to get you guys into World War One stuff? Slash, are there any other eras besides World War Two you'd like to do eventually?" Dylan, you bastard. Uh, well, yeah. Okay, so. Dylan has successfully gotten Ben to get started with World War One reenactment. Yep, yep. I've bought a bunch of World War One French kit of late, and so yeah. We discussed this quite a bit <clears throat> in the uh, Patreon episode that came out last week, I think. Uh, the French stuff, and I think there was another Patreon exclusive episode where we talked about other time periods that we would be interested in doing, mm. and so. Uh, ben is going to be branching out and doing probably Civil War reenacting and mm. also uh, World War One reenacting. Mm. Uh, for me, I I just I my priority is my World War Two group, and um, I'm not ruling it out, but it just the, my World War Two reenactment group that I run 
uh, it takes so much time and effort that I just don't think I have time to put together other impressions, nor do I have space, even within the voluminous halls of this cavernous mansion in which to store additional kits, you know, because I maintain such a massive hoard of World War II memorabilia. Yes, yes, assiduously maintained a warehouse that I'm looking at. (laughs) (laughs) David Petrosky writes... Thoughts on artificial sounds, like via Bluetooth speaker, set up in the distance, like simulated artillery in the sorts, for a static, immersive event, not tactical. I've never experienced this at an, at an event. Unsure how well it would go over. All I can think of is, like, the ever hear those tapes from the Vietnam War where they, like, recorded, like, spooky tapes to try to freak out the uh, North Vietnamese. Yeah, it was a psychological warfare yeah, thing where yeah, they were like playing psyop, you know? It was they were playing like the disembodied voice of a ghost who was wandering the landscape unable to be at rest because of the nature of his death and how his body was handled mm-hmm. in 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 you know which was not in accordance with their uh spiritual yeah, yeah, I was trying Cultural to play on trends. like you know Vietnamese culture and uh, and such from my understanding of it. Well, I have thought a lot about using Bluetooth speakers at an event, but in my mind, I wanted to try to do it in sort of a HP Lovecraft inspired weird horror LARP where you think that you're out on patrol looking maybe for some escaped POWs, but it turns out that there's like, you know, cosmic horror monsters that defy description and there would be Mm -hmm. some noises. I think, you know, let's try that out in October, dude. We have, we have talked about it. Um, well, now I can't because I'm talking about it on the podcast. Mm. So if every if people heard real spooky sounds mm. coming from the distance, they would know that I had mm. finally set up the Bluetooth speakers that I've been <laughs> talking about or thinking about anyway for years. I think the idea of using uh, Bluetooth speakers to enhance the ambiance of a static event is like a really good idea. Mm. I mean, it almost seems like, why don't we do this? Mm. Like, um, it doesn't necessarily have to be artillery. Someone, you know, circling back around to the earlier question about how can you create the feeling that there's more people out there? I mean, you could have noises from the adjacent sector or, you know, it, it, it could just be camp sounds or it could be almost anything, right? I was thinking like maybe the sound of, you know, like the noise of music or something, or like just yeah, the sound of the soldiers in the next uh, yeah, in the yeah, in the next yeah. trenches singing "Lily Marlene" or yeah, someone that's playing cool, an accordion know? or whatever. Yeah. Um, the problem is, is that you've got to do this in a way that feels realistic and not cheesy. Yeah. And well, that's that's like so much of the problem with World War II reenacting is that it's like an unbelievably fine line between hyper realistic and like purely embarrassing cringe because it's so nerdy or whatever. Yeah. And uh, that like line is in a little bit of a different place for basically everybody. Sure. There was a reenactor that I still am friendly with, and I'm not trying to knock this guy, but um, long, long ago when there were fewer options for uh, blank fire only weapons, for example, this guy had a dummy machine gun that he had rigged up with an LED light in the front so that when you would uh, pull the trigger, the light would flash. And it also triggered a machine gun noise that was played via a large speaker that was in an ammunition crate that you carried with the machine gun. So you'd set the machine gun up in a static position with the ammunition crate there, and then you would wait for the enemy to come, and you would pull the trigger, and the light would flash, and the uh, the loud machine gun sound would play out of the speaker. And uh, as whether or not you think this is a good idea on paper, the execution of this... Uh, proved almost legendary locally for some time in a a negative way you know uh so and and i feel like he didn't feel this thing very many times i think he realized this idea that might have seemed like a good idea wasn't really that good of an idea i feel like i had a like a toy gun when i was a kid that would like flash and make a sound and the result was unconvincing um that and that reminds me of this plastic toy that i had when i was a kid maximilian schmidt writes what makes a zone zony 
So for for people who might not be aware of this made up word zony, this is a a term that um, some reenactors use to describe uh, an object or a situation or an event or whatever it is that is particularly useful in terms of giving you the feeling that this is what it may have been like. So like, for example, um, you might have two things that you could use that are both equally correct, equally authentic in terms of sheer historical realism. But if one of those two items is just more evocative of a specific World War II situation for you, that is the zonier of the two items. So that's that's kind of the difference between zony and authentic, right? I think it, uh, it depends on a number of things. Um, I think some things might sort of see, you might feel sort of more real, more zony if uh, if you're like cold and wet, you know. Sure. Some like experience which might be mundane. If you just walked uh, walked out of your car, um, might be different. If you've you know spent the night with little sleep uh, in a, in like a slit trench. Um, right, like snow is inherently more zony to me than a, a a warm summer day. Yeah, and like the reenactment we did this past winter at Fort Mifflin, um, the only thing that was really different about that event was the snow, but the pictures from that are incredibly evocative and crazy. Um, and right, those, those pictures would have been no less authentic. Pictures taken yeah. of people wearing correct uniforms yeah. with you know original 1930s cameras, they would have been no less authentic had there been no snow that day, but they would have been less zony. Yeah, I agree. I think that uh, dusk is zonier than, than the full light of day. Yeah, yeah. Um, um... You know, I think that... Uh, You've got to have like being crowded into a small space, uh, you know, anytime that there's any kind of like building or architecture, like um, to me, uh, a forest is is not particularly zony. It can be in certain situations, but like, I don't know, a parade ground would be zonier to me. A barracks would be zonier. I was going to say um, realistic looking wear on things, um, be it artificial or, you know, natural. Um, If something is, if anything is like brand new, it should be deliberately brand new looking, you know, like... Sure, right. Like the amount of like mental thought that goes into choosing each and every yeah. item. Yeah. Um, yeah, like the term like lived in comes to mind. Yes, zoning is some things that you can create and some things you mm-hmm. can't, I think. Kevin Richard writes, serious question. I'm sure you've mentioned it before, but what's the zoniest situation slash event you attended that can't be topped? I have never mentioned it before because I don't I don't know. You know, every every event has has its own moment and every moment, I think basically every moment in reenacting has its own uh, feel in a sense where it like requires uh, you to pay very close attention to one thing. while meanwhile, you're not noticing some other perhaps more obvious thing. You know, it's like it, to me, reenactment is is so complex and. With regard to like situations, uh, it's just all in your mind. You know, I think I've said this before, but we're kind of all reenacting alone in some ways. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, I think through the years, there have definitely been sort of standout moments to me. Like at the gap, the sound of 10 typewriters in the headquarters going as people are just and people are just like busy with paperwork or um, at the Ohio Stalingrad that just at night, the the firelight of fires, you know, in the factory and dirty faces and just like being cold or even sort of last summer at that Smolensk event that I was at, um, just like frantically digging, um, as the sound of a German half track uh, approaches. Um, but I don't really think there's, there's one that has topped them all. They've all meant something to me in the moment. And maybe looking back, they felt that way for a specific reason. Like maybe if I relived them, they would feel different. Um, and that's what I like, actually. Sure. I think back to Fort Indian Town Gap. Um, we 
got involved in an attempt to recreate a Grosse Zapfenstreich, which is a sort of an evening ceremony. It's a sort of a mystical, glorious, traditional German military ceremony that predates the Third Reich. It is still uh, used today as well, so it's not like some Nazi-specific thing. Um, this is a sort of a ceremony that has drill associated with it and commands and, and marching and moves. And uh, obviously, when this is performed in the German military, it's performed by trained soldiers who um, are very proficient in performing these moves. Uh, we decided to try to do this at Fort Indian Town Gap with a, a wide array of reenactors from different units coming together and trying to do this. And we trained hours and hours uh, on consecutive days. And then we finally did execute this thing. And we executed it, I thought, perfectly. I felt perfectly. Everything that we had trained for, it all came together and we did it flawlessly as a large group. And to me, the feeling of achievement that came from being part of a team that did days of drilling and executed this thing perfectly, that to me felt extremely real and extremely rewarding. Having said that, if I could go back and watch, uh, you know, a, a, a video of that thing being performed, I mean, I bet there was some laugh out loud stuff. I think we had uh, part of this thing, there's music involved. And I think we were playing it on like a cassette deck or something. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't it wasn't a live band, um, but that wasn't what I was focused on. You know, I was focused on us and what we had trained for and what we were doing together as a team and the success that came out of that. So, That's cool, dude. Yeah. I'm jealous of that. John McDougal Hepburn writes, What would be the options to set up a proper rear area supply train at an event? Chris, I defer to you on this. All right, well... Uh, the options are limited and it would be an event specific thing. Something that I have experience with is that you will have, all right. So uh, kind of zooming out here, full disclosure, my group does sort of a rear area impressions. So I spend a lot of time thinking about uh, rear area and support type structures at reenactments. And I have tried to incorporate these in a lot of different events. And sometimes it was a success and sometimes it wasn't. And um, even with all the experience that I have, if you described to me an event now and, and an idea for how uh, a rear area scenario could be included, I don't know if I would be able to accurately predict whether or not that would really succeed. You know, it's like you almost have to do it and try and find out if it works or if it doesn't. Um, there is a large demand at World War II reenactment events to have uh, like uh, support elements, for example, like a supply train. Um, but to actually be able to make that functional is a lot harder than you think. For one thing, you need you need the people to man it and then in order to be effective as a support element, you need to have the other element that you are actively supporting. So, you know, um, you'd need to have a pretty large scale event and um, you would have to have a lot of people on the same page. And I mean, it's uh, if we're talking specifically about a rear area supply train, I think it's got to be a very large scale event. And then you could have people in the various roles who would be in the tross at, at, in, in a real unit, you know, where you could have a Schreibstube and you could have uh, a Schuster and you could have a, a tailor and um, the Befehlsteller, you know, and uh, people with maps and all of this different stuff, all of these vignettes that you would see with the field kitchen, everything, you know, um, and it would be awesome if you could pull it off. But it's it would yeah, have to be, to be it would have to be the right event if i might chime in on this i feel like i've heard of such a thing being done i'm not sure how successfully but i've heard of being tried in a scene like civil war reenacting but i've never sort of heard of it being done at the proper scale uh or even like a half scale in world war ii reenacting henry stracy writes over the last 10 years what would you say have been the most positive developments when it comes to reenacting? 
Well, for for me, thinking about it, I mean, there are definitely uh, ways to disseminate information and to be in contact with people that are different and probably more efficient now than they were 10 years ago. Sure, sure, sure. I mean, it's just um, accessibility of information, probably availability of vendors. Um, I know we've talked about sometimes that's a bit of a double-edged sword, but it's it's it, there's cool reproductions of things being made now which were not made before like good example is up until last year i'd never seen a tornister reproduction i liked until that company zila 39 came along but of course now they're sort of in limbo so things come and they go um yeah i think we've seen like global technological advancements in the last 10 years that have provided a, a boon to reenacting in a sense and uh, I certainly agree that available availability of reproductions, um, particularly for some fairly obscure items or difficult to make items or, you know, as original items have become more uh, expensive and difficult to obtain, they've been reproduced uh, instead. I think those are all positive developments. Yeah, I would agree on that. Wilhelm Milke says... What would you say is your most prized World War II reenactment item currently? State one original item and one repro item and why. For me, the answer to this question changes all the time because I go through like weird phases. Like today, I'm in sort of a blankets and tornisters phase. Uh, but on a different day, I might be in more of like a eating utensils phase mm. or maybe a field cap phase or like maybe like whatever I got most recently, you know. Let me try to answer that. Um, just in terms of thinking, like, what of mine that I would, like, miss the most? Well, as everybody knows, I'm, like, a fanatic for helmets. And I would say probably most cherished possession is my, like, M35 single single decal reissue helmet that I wear for an original and for a reproduction item. Maybe my... Um, Maybe my tunic, my M40 tunic, it's a Sturm reproduction. The wear on it is excellent. Um, basically, I just, I love it. I try not to use any original items uh, when it can be avoided. I know this has been discussed uh, countless times here. Uh, sadly, there is no reproduction of a World War II typewriter, so I guess I would go with one of those. That's cool. Somebody sent me a private message and said, I'm currently in the process of organizing my first event and was wondering if you had any advice or what you look for in a good event. Hmm. I would say just make sure if you promise people something that you deliver upon it. That's great advice. Yeah. Um, Manage the expectations of the people going to your event. Yeah. You know, accurately tell them what to expect and then do everything in your power to make sure that the experience that they get is what you told them it was going to be. Yeah, I would say if you overpromise, um, I there's definitely a, a I understand the drive to to want to create hype, but um, that uh, if you aren't if you are not able to deliver on that the first time, you might disillusion some people. I would just say get as much information about the event out there that you can as possible. You know, who's in charge? What's the plan for the event? What's the earliest time that people can arrive? When is registration open? Is there a registration cost? What is it? Are any meals provided? If so, when? Um, knowing these things makes it so much easier from the perspective of the participant um, going. You know, I've, I've gone to a lot of established reenactment events where maybe I'm attending it for the first time, but it's an event that's happened for years in the past. And the attitude of the event organizers in some of these cases seems to be, well, I'm not really going to tell people, uh, you know, when registration's open or what's provided for food because the people coming, uh, they already know, right? But there's always someone who's going to the event for the first time, even if it's an established event. Yeah. So being able to know uh, where to where is parking, you know, these kind of things, it's just like, it's so valuable. Yeah, don't assume people know um, signage is good, um, like clear written instructions beforehand. The other thing too is, if you think you have to cancel it for any reason, do it sooner than later. I understand people get invested in these things. They don't want to let people down. They don't want to uh, 
they don't want to give up on the dream. But I have seen some people get really burned because the organizer might not want to see uh, the writing on the wall and basically waits until the last minute to cancel the event. And that is just an exercise in basically making people uh, resent uh, future attempts at an event by that person. I find that uh, providing at least one meal offers a lot of value to the event, whether it's a hot meal or cold rations. Um, from the perspective of, of a participant, knowing that I'm not responsible for bringing all of absolutely all of the food that I'm going to be consuming at the event uh, definitely helps. I would say uh, if you're going to give people food, it doesn't have to be the most delicious or the most hearty meal that they've ever had. But um, something if you're telling people you're going to give them a meal, uh, give them something with some substance uh, and something that's palatable because people are kind of counting on that. Something that I've seen people do that's sort of in in addition to to a meal, I'd say meal is probably the most important, but I've seen some pretty creative and extensive like letter writing projects in my time um, where maybe each each registered participant at the event gets a gets a letter like from home supposedly um, and uh, that's it can be kind of fun and like a little bit of a morale boost when somebody comes around and just gives you something and you read it and it's a little surprise you know a little surprise is cool even just thinking back uh, Ben to the Gettysburg event that we went to in the summer where an officer came around with like sunflower seeds yes it was yes really cool that was awesome that was great but I think, you know, you got to make sure you've got the basics down. Like if people are allowed to have fires, you need to tell people if they can expect to have a fire there or not. If they can have fires, providing firewood is good. If you can or don't want to provide fire, firewood, you've got to tell people that no firewood will be provided. Yeah. You've got to provide water. Absolutely. And you've got to at least be able to tell people where they're going to go to the bathroom, whether you've got porta potties, whether the site has facilities, or if it's uh, a man and a shovel in the woods, if that's how it's going to be. Uh, but at least, you know, have a plan for that uh, to tell people what, what the plan is. Gavin Dashner wrote, how does an individual reenactor make a non-immersion event feel immersive for themselves or their group? Mm, Chris, what do you think? Uh, well, it, it can be really, really hard. It can be really hard. Um, one of the things that I think is really good is um, learning a skill. Uh, for example, we did an event recently where one of the participants had an incredible repertoire of uh, period songs that he could play on the accordion. To me, that made this was an immersive event, but it made it all the more uh, immersive. Yeah, yeah, that was that was really cool to experience. You know, you could bring food, a period recipe, maybe a baked good or something, even if it's just bread that you made according to an original recipe that you could kind of distribute out, share with your friends. If you have a game that you have uh, that you know the rules to and you're and you can at least explain to people, that can be really fun too. Yeah, these things can kind of create little moments or vignettes that can be immersive, even if the event itself is not an immersive event. Yeah, like we are now a chess club, apparently, uh, as of the last event, which is, it's been fun. Sure. Um, <laughs> there are some events that are basically irredeemable. You know, when you're doing an event, imagine if you were participating in an event at, um, I don't know, uh, at Disneyland, right? And, you know, you've got Mickey Mouse there and it's families and uh, the parade is going by. I mean, you're not going to be able to create the feeling of Stalingrad in that setting. No, you know, it's a lost no, cause. No. Um, but you might be able to create a moment for someone or you might be able to uh, make to enhance something, make something feel just that little bit more real. Yeah, you shell Cinderella's castle. <laughs> Max Eberhardt writes, how far is taking it too far in regards to accuracy? And and what I guess what he means by that is like, you know, how, how much effort in terms of realism can you put in before it's a waste of your effort or it's totally over the top or, or ridiculous or absurd? I would say we're all a little crazy in this hobby, but if there's like an extreme risk of personal injury... Uh, or just like a foolhardiness that anybody who has any, like, say, like, 
if you are exposing yourself to conditions that you know people who are like experienced woodsmen would uh, tell you to avoid, then that's probably when you know to stop. Sure, right. Like if you're like, well, I'm gonna upstage everybody by at this event by sleeping at the bottom of the lake. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to uh, go on and on about this too much because I feel like I talk about this too much and it's an unpopular opinion, but I think people focus too much on material culture authenticity. Mm. I think a focus on material culture authenticity, some level of focus on it is absolutely required in this hobby. It is definitely an important part of reenacting and it can be valuable and good. And certainly I would put my material culture stuff up against anybody else's, but um I do think sometimes people get like just hyper focused on these minute details while giant aspects of knowledge pertaining to World War II are just totally uninteresting to them. You know, people yeah. would accuse me of like straw manning in this situation, but like I have absolutely seen this before. Well, I, I think I used to be, I think I used to be a part of the problem here in this situation. And I like to think I've somewhat redeemed myself, but I mean, I've come to the realization that, uh, I think individual soldiers in World War II probably weren't comparing uh, the shade of, you know, the material goods they were issued, you know, um, or the exact pattern on the camouflage that they were wearing or, or something, you know? Well, I remember one time I got in an argument on the internet with somebody because they said that they were uh, presenting the best Folksturm impression that had ever been presented. And I said, okay, well, I also have a Folksturm impression, so here's mine. So how's yours better? And he's like, well, I put an unbelievable amount of effort into really like dialing in to like incredibly specific late war details. So for example, my Zeltbahn is manufactured specifically custom for me using small details that were only observed in some specific late war manufactured examples. And it's like, okay, but do you think that Volksturm troops got the brand new Zeltbahn at the time? Like, can you show me what percentage of Volksturm troops even had at Zeltbahn at all? Or like, do you even know enough about the Volksturm to understand that in some units and unit types that Zeltbahn shouldn't be there in any circumstances? Mm. And it's like, this dude had so invested, you know, like, not to be picking on this guy if he's listening, but it's just like, I feel like, like, look, everyone has a different approach to this thing. But in my opinion, an approach that's just like, you know, I have I have done just this unbelievable level of learning to understand these minute details to about the physical when the bigger picture seems to be sort of lacking. To me, that kind of misses the point. Basically, Chris eloquently said what I was thinking. <laughs> Raymond Weston writes... How do you make a great unit impression? Do you force members to buy from only certain vendors to look like you were all kitted out at the same time? Uh, no. Well, you could. You know, and I, I think Ray Weston probably doesn't think that's how you make a great unit impression. But I think what he's getting at is that some people might think that that is the way. Yeah, I sense some facetiousness in the question. Well, I guess I'd play devil's advocate and say if you decided that you wanted to portray a specific Volksgrenadier regiment and you knew you had documentation that these guys pulled new supplies from stores at the time that they were established in autumn of 1944. And so you actually uh, make everyone buy the exact same item so that every single person's kit is a cookie cutter representation. I mean, that could be cool if, if, if it was based on historical documentation, which it could be. Sure, But sure. that's not the only way to make a unit impression. Well, I think on some level, I guess it is the only way to make a unit impression in the sense that that would be based on historical documentation. I think basing it on historical documentation is the way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was going to say, like, I think the sort of salient point from that is an approved vendor list. And maybe there's only one vendor. To me, I don't even necessarily think so much about the approved vendor list with regard to creating a unit impression. It's more like, what items do we use? More than like where they come from. But it's just like, okay, you have to choose. There's a bunch of models of cap that you could choose. There is no generic German soldier cap for 1944. Someone could be wearing an M34 cap, an M42 cap, an M43 cap, or something else. So, you know, you need to figure out, okay, well, 
what is historical documentation showing me in regard to uh, what model of cap would be appropriate for this unit impression that I'm trying to build? Yeah. And then going with that. To jump off that, I mean, if somebody is wearing an, M- an M36 tunic doing a 1944 year, um, it shouldn't look brand new. That thing would have been out of production for, you know, four or five years, and uh, it should be, you know, worn in. Um so to speak. Well, if right, like if you are looking, that's that's like the next level, right? Where the first the first step is to establish, okay, well, what items did this unit have in this specific place at this specific time? And then the next question is, how can we take existing reproductions and make them look like the original items that we know were used by this unit in this specific place at this specific time? Mm-hmm. And so. Some people, to, for some people, uniformity is very important, and I understand that that's a perspective on reenacting that is very much one that can be justified with historical documentation. I have sort of a different view. I think that um, of lack of uniformity, as long as it's done in a very researched way, in a very thought-out way, can actually be more convincing in some ways. You know, for specific units at specific times. Everything here being so unit-specific, really. Mm, I agree on that. Brian Crawford writes, Have your COVID lockdown adventures, hiking and camping, added anything to your reenactment enjoyment? Uh, I would say yes, um, in that I feel like like we've learned a few skills doing some not reenactment-related camping activities or hiking activities. put some realistic wear on gear that normally you only get to wear at events and also have been able to do some things that I've missed at events like making a meal in Nesbitt stove and I missed it. I have very much enjoyed hiking and camping and using my gear to do outdoor things um, in this time when we've had fewer events but I fear that it may actually have detracted from my reenactment enjoyment in some ways specifically if i'm like hiking frequently or camping or doing outdoor stuff and using specific skills that are kind of uh that previously for me were unique to world war ii reenactment and now it's time for me to do an actual event finally and i go to the event and i'm with the same people that i've been doing hiking and camping with and i'm performing the same activities um and the only difference is, is that, you know, this is an event and I'm pretending it's World War II versus we did the same activity last month in a more laid back setting with no without a strict dress code. Some, something is kind of lost in that. I think. Yeah, it does feel the, if the event is a small group of people and they're the same people who you were doing capping with, it might feel like a hangout with extra steps. Um, I feel like the an event has to offer something more. And if it can't, then it can be disappointing hiking and camping and and stuff like that have definitely added to the enjoyment of my life you know i i used to go to an event every month most of these being overnight events i'd be sleeping on the ground i'd be sleeping in a tent or whatever Uh, there are fewer events now i'm certainly not going to take that time that i used to be uh, camping at events and instead um you know, take up a new hobby playing video games or something. I'm going to do something outside. I'm going to enjoy myself in that way. Um, but I don't know. I, in a perfect world, I think, like, I would only use my reenactment stuff at events to just to make it all that more special. Mm, mm, I, I agree on that. But I'm, like, not satisfied with the frequency and tempo of reenactment events at this point. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take whatever opportunity I can to to interact with that stuff in whatever way is fun for me. Okay, we just have a couple more. Uh, Tobias Snildal Hegelson writes, is it reenacting if it's only you in the woods? I would say yes. Um, ideally, you have more people. I know some people might push back on me for this, but I, ideally I see reenacting as being uh, like a like a group activity. But it is possible to still to spend reality by yourself depending on sort of circumstances and mindset and whatnot. I wrote a short article about this, and I would encourage people who are interested in this topic to take a look at it. You can look at um, my reenactment group website. The address is uh, www.feshtung.net 
F-E-S-T-U-N-G. And there's an information tab there, and there's a list of articles there. And one of the articles is called Reenacting Alone. And it was kind of a thought uh, exercise of mine. You know, are there ways that you can reenact alone? Obviously, the the day-to-day reality of soldiers in World War II was not being by themselves. They were like part of an army. But there are things that were, uh, I think, very representative and characteristic of the day-to-day life of a soldier in World War II that you can kind of replicate on your own. For example, marching with a pack, living with just what you can carry, uh, eating or preparing rations using issue-type gear, using and maintaining issue-type equipment in general. Even being alone in the woods, especially at night. Sure, right, like if you were on guard duty, for example. And so so these are things that that you can get a sense of the the feeling of it you know or what it was like if you're doing that you know yeah to me that's um that is kind of the spirit and the heart of what reenacting is sure if you're if it's just you in the woods and your purpose out there is to uh take timer cam selfies of you and your kit to post on instagram to me that is not reenacting no that's a photo shoot i feel like but if if you're sleeping in a you know if you're sleeping under the shelter of a single zeltbahn in the woods at night, um, you know keeping yourself warm with a small fire or having no fire or you know and in the morning you're going to uh, fry up some potatoes in your mess kit. To me, that's reenacting for sure. Mm-hmm. The final question that we had was from Wilhelm Duig. He says. Do you think World War II reenacting in the U.S. needs a large space like World War I enjoys in Newville, Pennsylvania? Do you think this could be foreseeable in the state of the hobby today? I think we did have that um, with 40 in Dintown Gap, and that kind of went away. Um, but maybe I could be wrong on that. Maybe it was just truly an eastern seaboard type thing. Chris, what do you think? Well, the, the problem is, so uh, for people who aren't aware of what's being discussed here, uh, there is a sort of a national World War I reenactment umbrella organization called the Great War Association. And they own a large piece of property in Newville, Pennsylvania, on which they have built a replica World War I battlefield. And it's an absolutely incredible thing that they have and that they've built. Do I think World War II reenacting needs a space like that? No. Like, need is a, is a strong word. We just got done talking about... Uh, how you can reenact by yourself. If you can reenact by yourself in your own backyard, which I think is is possible depending on the circumstances of your backyard, um, then you don't need to have a large hobby-wide piece of property. Do I think that such a piece of property would be an absolute boon to World War II reenacting? Of course I do. You know, Could that take World War II reenacting to another level? I think it's certainly possible. Mm, interesting. Do I think that such a thing like that is foreseeable? There was a recent attempt to crowdfund such a thing, and that attempt to crowdfund it may still be ongoing. But the last I looked, the huge sum of money wasn't really flowing towards this project. And and that's really what would kind of be required here. Yeah, I feel like you need an individual or maybe a few individuals with who have that kind of cash um, and can build something. Um, and I know, like, Rome wasn't built in a day, but... Uh, I don't even I, I am not even entirely sure the set of circumstances that led to the creation of the World War One Newville site, um, but I'm not even sure that could be duplicated for World War Two. It's a really interesting story about uh, World War One Newville. In fact, I would love to get somebody on who can really tell that story. They used to have a site in uh, I think it was Shimpstown, West Virginia. That's this now legendary place where World War One reenacting took place, and they lost access to that site. And for some years, they didn't have any site at all, and it was like a really bleak time for them. Mm. And uh, they somehow applied for this property that was like, somehow it was available at like a cheap price, but you had to apply for it. And I think there were like competing plans, different groups had different visions for what that place could be. And uh, GWA, I think they they were awarded it and, and bought it or whatever, uh, I probably shouldn't even describe this because I'm sure I'm getting this wrong, but could such an opening take place? Could there be such an opportunity for World War II reenacting uh, 
look, it's a matter of money, I think. Yeah. If we had all it takes is one guy with absolutely unlimited money, if he wants to buy uh, a whole bunch of acres and build a World War II village on there and uh, put that thing into a trust so that it's just going to be a World War II battlefield forever or whatever. I don't even know how this stuff works. Because um, even if even if you just had one guy doing it on his property, well, if he falls on hard times or something happens to him and the property gets sold, that's the end of your site. Right? Yeah. But I think that it is it is could theoretically be possible for you to put in some kind of legal document that means it's going to be a World War II battlefield forever or something. I don't know. Um, that's cool. But if you did that, right, if all of that stuff happened, I'm sure the events there would be epic. Sure. Are there enough people in the hobby right now? Is there enough money? Is the demand enough to justify spending hundreds of thousands, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands? Like, I don't think so. And Mm. the thing is, is that, uh, here I am, I've been reenacting World War II for 20 years, and at no time in those 20 years was there some privately owned, national-level, large, dedicated World War II site. Mm. And yet, reenactment has been a fun pastime of mine. Sure. So uh, we've gone this far without it. I think we're going to go into the future without it, and I would love to see it happen, but I certainly wouldn't be holding my breath. Yeah, it it's just it was it's one of those events where you can't really describe it. You sort of have to be there because it just felt so much like you were actually in Normandy. I think that female reenacting is still sort of in its embryonic stage, but I do think that there is room to grow. A lot of reenactors probably had like some sort of burnout, maybe from like years past. It sucks, but it was a pretty good pause for everyone to kind of like regroup and like kind of like a really nice refresh to get back out there. The reenactors' corner. Bringing history to life. So that's it. Thank you guys for all of the questions. There were some really great questions in here that have been fun. Ben, it's been fun talking to you about this. Likewise, Chris. Uh, I'd like to say thank you to those of you who support us on Patreon. It is very much appreciated, and without your support, we wouldn't be able to do this. So uh, thank you very much for that. And uh, on that note, thanks, guys, for listening, and I will see you in the field. See you in the field. We love hearing what you think about the podcast. So why not let us know by reaching out in all the usual places, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Just search for The Reenactors Corner and you'll find us there. And maybe think about supporting us via Patreon. No matter how happy or small, your monthly donations make a huge difference. You can sign up for as little as $2 a month. And as ever, thanks to Mike, a.k.a. Retro Man, for editing the podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and will join us here again at The Reenactors Corner.